Welcome to another Pint with Shawnee B. I have a guest in front of me who I have only met about eight minutes ago, a lady who is a business coach and mentor, and that would be a first for a Pint with Shawnee B. Her name is Claire Derry. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Before we start, tell me what you do now. Tell me what a business coach and mentor is as you, as you practice it. Right. Well, what I do now is work with people who've already got a business, so a business owner, and I help them to make that business the business they want it to be to give them the life they want to have. Okay. So ideally, we look at trying to make the business more commercial. So at some point, it can work without them. So it can give them either a passive income or they okay. can sell the business and exit. I had my own business. I started it when I was quite young, in mm. my 20s. It became one of the fastest growing private companies in the UK in that time, which was in the 90s. And I sold out and I have this beautiful home and yeah. all the trappings that I've got as a result of being able to sell that business. So you're passing on your wisdom. Yeah, so I'm would helping... You, would you be interested in taking the pint with Shawnee B as a client? Because I'm making no <laughs> money from this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I enjoy it, I enjoy it. And I also particularly like working with young people who are looking for more direction in their career and I sort of help them get their head around what it is they really want to do so yeah. they can feel passionate about it. So what I'm doing a lot of is saying to business owners, if you want to get an engaged workforce, you've actually got to think a lot harder about you how to engage with millennials. So they actually come to work feeling they're making a contribution because yeah. they're really into purpose and meaning. Mm -hmm. They don't just want to show up. It's not just all about the money. They require different things. They think they should be able to give their boss feedback on yeah. how well he is as a boss. On average, they're only staying in the job seven months. They're much more mobile. Yeah. In fact, my own son sent me a video saying, you grown-ups, we're not going to do things the way you do. Yeah. You know, we can sit on an island and communicate yeah. and do our thing. So uh, I think uh, business has got to wake up. It's a whole generation coming through that want to be more engaged in what they're doing. And I'm running a program which is called Engage and Grow. Mm -hmm. So get these people engaged and they'll grow your business for you. You know, if you think of a business a bit like a boat, you've got two or three people at the front of the boat who yeah. are rowing like hell. And you've got the bulk of the people, you know, 12 to 14 people sitting yeah. in the boat, turning up, showing up, doing a day's work, but, you know, not really enjoying it, not committing, not thinking outside the box, yeah. not being creative. And then you've got about four people at the back of the boat who've thrown the anchor off mm. and are actually disruptive. By getting people involved in having a say about where the business is going, what it's doing, yeah. having some input, I aim to you know get all of those people or the majority of them feeling like they can make a contribution and can be involved in rowing the boat. What was your background? Where did you come from? I was born in Newark in right. Nottinghamshire. Okay. I've got four older brothers. Right. You were well-minded. <laughs> Stay away from my sister. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't remember that. Bit. All I remember was I had to catch a ball. I had to be right. wicket keeper at cricket, okay. scrum half at rugby. What was it like for you growing up in that family? Was it? Did you have a happy childhood? Yeah, you? very, very happy. Very competitive though, and I suppose my most defining characteristic is I've always been hugely competitive. I've learnt now. I'm coaching other people to tone it all down because it's. Yeah. It's not any more about my success. So in school, were you top of the class kind of girl? Or? No, not hugely no. academic. None of us were academic. Yeah. We were all a bit dyslexic in some right. way or other. Very competitive at sport. And I think having had that childhood of doing sort of competitive sport with boys, then, you know, I was sort of very physically strong and, and able, yeah. if you know what I mean. So so was it, would, would you be this... this Called like a bloke's girl, like you were, you were kind of a tomboy, were you when you were? Yeah, growing? very much so. I want to talk a bit later about that whole area because obviously it's a hot topic at yeah. the sexual discrimination workplace and how women sort of are getting it. And there's a huge role in my view for women like you who have been successful in business as a role model. Yeah, and what you can pass back. So maybe come to that towards the end. Yeah, sure. Did you have any kind of feel for where you were going to end up when you were in your teens, just leaving school, or what did you? What was well, your plan I, of action? I, I I thought I'd probably be a teacher and probably teach PE because sport okay. was the driving motivation. Kept getting injured for various reasons, 
difficult that I'd get to PE college because of all the injuries I was getting. And so I decided to go to university. Didn't really enjoy it. I think the transition from all girls boarding school. Would you recommend boarding school for girls? Do you know, today I don't know. I wouldn't recommend No man who I've ever had on recommends it for men. Yeah, you're well, the I first person. It. You're the first person I think I've had on who's, from, who's been to boarding school as a girl. Um, I think my parents felt I was turning into more of a boy than the boys. So, so the, it was almost like a finishing school. Yeah, finishing it was, school. God, what are we going to do with her? We better send her <laughs> off to boarding school. <laughs> Give her some sort of yeah. female yeah. attributes. I absolutely loved it. I, I don't know whether that was partly getting away from all these boys and, mm. and actually making some new friends. It was a very middle of the road sort of based for, on a religious sort of basis. It nuns. Really, not quite nuns. Right. It was, although I wasn't one, it was for vicar's daughters. Ah. But I, my father wasn't a vicar, so I have no idea why that quite that happened. Right. That's hilarious. There's actually a school for vicars. Yeah, well, it was because vicars weren't paid very much in those days, so it wasn't a hugely expensive school. Uh. I think that was probably it. But my daughter, yeah, she went to an all-girls school, and I think she'd have been better in a mixed environment. And these days, with the pressure on girls to be beautiful, to be brilliant, to be slim, to be everything, I think an all-girls environment's not great. I think that brings with it a lot of difficulties. And the internet. And social media, yeah, yeah, yeah. and what that's doing. Yeah. Eating disorders, self-harming, yeah. all of those things, which absolutely didn't happen when I was a young no. girl, are really... It's astonishing, those, that there, was a, there was a lot of things probably back then that happened that don't happen today, that were yeah. bad. But those things are only kind of fed by herd mentality or whatever, mm. you know, people coming out and simply saying, oh, I must try that or that. And it's definitely, I think, down to down to social media and, and of course my business the image business and advertising mm. and the detrimental effect Peer pressure that and, yeah. yeah so yeah. what university did you go to and what did you do there? I went to Newcastle well I was the first generation of my family to mm. go to university none, none of my brothers went so there was no preconceived ideas coming from the family or anything else why didn't I like it? I, I think I'd been quite a big fish in a small pond at boarding school. And then when you go to university, you know, nobody cares whether you show Leveler, up or not. Yeah. It's entirely up to you. Yeah. And I got heavily involved in politics and, you know, things that I just think now, why on earth did I do that? I didn't keep up with my sport. I didn't do the things you loved. that I loved. Yeah. I sort of got into, uh, yeah. Um, so I didn't really enjoy it. I was vice president, got involved in the students' union quite a bit. But you I very of, pragmatic and sensible. Were you, were you like that when you were... Yeah, always been yeah. like that. Yeah. So I think a, influence of a military father. Okay. Not always, you know, give me a drink or two and there's yeah, another yeah. Well, side appears. <laughs> you all have that, I hope. Did you have like a... I'm, I can feel even from just meeting you this sort of step, 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 like, you know, you're planning ahead for yeah, something. Yeah, well, yeah, like, completely the opposite of... I, and still do. Yeah. You know, even now at the great age that I am, I'm, I'm still planning, you know, what's going to be the next thing? Yeah. How do I, you know, contribute? What what can I give back? Yeah, so that's always been... So yeah. what happened when you left university? Were you, were I you... went on a retail uh, marketing program with Boots the Chemist. Okay. I wanted to join a large organisation that would give me some training. British Airways, United Biscuits, Boots, Marks and Spencers. Yeah. You know, they were the companies, or I did look at going into advertising, Leah Burnett. Yeah. And so you, you felt, you know, you were coming out raw, you had a certain amount of academic ability, and you were going to learn a profession or an industry. So yeah, and that's where I started. Right. So what were you doing there, and how long did that last? What did you... I was an assistant buyer, started off, became a buyer fairly quickly, buying audio and video products. Video was just really beginning. And I was at the Open Golf in about 1980-something in Sandwich, and a television presenter called Michael Barrett, who produced Nationwide in those days, met me and said, I want you to come and work for me. And uh, six months later, the salary had gone up from sort of a bit more than I was earning to Mm. double what I was earning to three times what I was earning. So was it working for the BBC? No, 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 it was, he'd set up his own business and he was making special interest videos. So he was doing cookery programs and he'd bought a book written by a guy called Robert Lacey about Princess Diana. Mm. 
and we ended up making a film of that. And I joined him as his marketing manager. So you optioned his and then did a documentary. Yeah. And was it successful? Yeah, we sold, yeah, right. we sold a lot of them. And I was responsible for mar- doing all the marketing. And But it gave me the idea, I guess, that buying rights to things and making them into television programmes could work quite well. And then I increasingly began to think that buying the rights to children's books, um, making children's television programmes based on those books, gave you lots of different revenue sources. So yeah. you could, because they were tended to be cartoons, animation or puppetry or things like that, you could easily change them into different languages. So you could sell yeah. them all over the world. Merchandise. And then you've got all the merchandising opportunities. Um, so you were quite young when you saw this plan developing. Yeah, head. I met Mike. I was 23 when I met Michael. I'm sort of a bit of a believer in destiny and mm. doors will open for you and you have a choice whether you go through that yeah. door or you don't. I agree with that. I then was working for Michael, not really feeling there was enough there for me. A friend of mine in the video industry rang me up and he said, look, I'm working for Big Magazine Group and we're in a real mess. Don't suppose you want to leave your current job because you've only been in it six months. But, you know, would you have any spare time just to give us a bit of advice? So I said, yeah, sure. So I went along and I started, I said to Michael, look, I think I can do what you need in three days. I'd like two days to help these people out. And he wasn't thrilled to bits, but he said, okay, if you you, know, you want to. And so I started off advising them and uh, they were a big magazine group, uh, Link House Publications. They owned Exchange and Mart, and, uh, but they decided to try and invest in media. All sorts of things that were connected to things they published. So that's they, quite ahead of its time. Yeah, so they were, they were, they were, and, and they were ahead of their time. And you know, some of them were pretty obscure, and mm-hmm. they hadn't secured a broadcaster interested in them before they made them. So they yeah. was trying to sell finished product into broadcasters, which you never get much money for that. Yeah. Um, so I said to them, "Had you thought about children's programs?" And this is prior to Thomas the Tank Engine or right. Postman Power or any of those sorts of things. And they said, oh, yeah, well, we made this magic show. We have made a magic show. And I wasn't that impressed with the magic show. But right. I said, well, I, I think that's the area that's going to be big in the future. Yeah. After about six months, I realized I was enjoying my part-time role more than I was enjoying yeah. the other one. So I had to have I, a chat with Michael. I had to have another <laughs> chat with Michael. And um, I joined them still as a consultant. And then another year on and they said, this is working really well. We like it. Why don't you take it on as a full-time role? Right. So I started off working for them. And then Link House got bought by United Newspapers. Mm. And United Newspapers says, what's this little business not making any money? And yeah. we, we, we have bet- no vision. We're yeah. a newspaper company. Yeah. <laughs> All of that. All of that. Our business won't die in 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, and so... The boss said to me, why don't you do a management buyout? I said, there's only me. Right. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but you know, you could do a management buyout. Um, and I thought I should have done what my dad said in the first place and stayed at Boots. So I'm I was, trying to work out what the management buyout would be different from you just going, okay, see you, and just opening up your own thing. Well, they'd invested millions in okay. all this programming. Oh, they still had all the rights Yeah, to they it. had oh, all yeah, these yeah, yeah. rights. They had all these rights. Oh, they'd, what they'd a put, gold mine, yeah. Yeah, they'd put a load of money in it. Right. So they desperately wanted me to do a management buyout. That we got this show called The Trapdoor, which I thought I'd managed to sell to ITV. It had been funded by a venture capital company. And the venture capital company said to me, Claire, do a management buyout. And I said, I don't know that I want to. You know, I had no ambition to run my own business. They said, well, look, we'll back you. But don't let on that you've got any backing. You play the reluctant bride and you'll get one hell of a deal because we're going to be putting pressure on from the other side that we're co-investors in one of these projects. And if they walk away from it, we're going to sue them. We're going to make life Ah. very difficult for them. What sort of readies did you have to come up with? To start the business? Well, I mean, oh, you get roughly. Was, no, it, no, was, I can it, tell was you. it hundreds of thousands or millions? Three thousand pounds. Three thousand pounds, brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it was. Your, it was the yeah, sort of, your bank account. Yeah, it was the sort of deal of the century, really. Yeah. Although at the time, you know, I really could take it or leave it. And so, the more reluctant I was, the I better the deal got. So they didn't want any money up front for, to buy the business. They wanted ten percent of profits. 
and you know, for how long? Um, I think it was for two years. It was right. a relatively short time. Right. They gave me free office accommodation for two years to, mm. to get me going. And then this venture capital company actually said to me, we'd like to be in with you. Right. We'll chuck in 50 grand. And it was them that insisted I put some money in. They said, how much can you afford? And I said, well, not very much. You know, I'm, mm. you know it's only my second job and yeah. I've not been earning very much. So they said, well, can you put in five grand? And I said, well... Three. I said, I could manage three. Yeah. I said, okay, you put in three, we'll put in 50. Right, brilliant. And they took... This is weird. You suddenly had this... You suddenly were becoming a business person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, with no... Yeah. You know, no great plan yeah, yeah. that that was what I was going to do. And um, so they were called Linkhouse Publications and right. I called mine Link Licensing because I was going to license IP for yeah. all the things that we got involved in. And at just about the same time, Thomas the Tank Engine had really started to take off. So I was seeing a model and we had this portfolio of things that Linkhouse had put money in. So, yeah, so it was quite a, quite a start. But it only really took off when I recognised that I just needed to bring in great people to mm. work for me. There were things I was good at. I was good at winning business. And I was good at selling but I was not good at the money side. Mm -hmm. So I brought in a friend who had been in the television industry, uh, who's a lot older than me, to do the finance. Mm -hmm. So that freed me up, freed up a big chunk of my head. Uh, and eventually I made him a partner in the business and gave him some shares. And then I just looked for wonderful people. And I... I wonderful people in terms of who were writing books or wonderful no, people to come um, in well, I had a, account executives and stuff like that? A yeah. bit of both. Right. I approached people. So I approached Frank Muir because he'd written one of my favourite kiddies books, right. which was called What a Mess, about this Afghan puppy who right. created mayhem. Yeah. And it was based on Frank's own dog. dog right. And... Uh, I rang his agent and he said, oh, you know, that is very much Frank's personal stuff. You know, you have to ring him. So I thought this was a, you know, famous older television yes. personality. And I rang him up and he said, oh, my dear, come and have lunch with me at Groucho's and we'll right. discuss it. And he said, now, what's your idea? So I said, well, you know, I'd love to make an animated cartoon about, you know, what a mess. And he said, oh, right. What's your experience in this field? You know, all the obvious questions. Yeah. And I kept on having to say, well, not a lot, really. He said, well, what, what, you know, what are you thinking? And I said, I told him what I thought and how I thought it would work and whatever. And I said, but I haven't got a great deal of money. And, you know, I don't know what sort of money you'd be looking for for the rights. And he said, look, let's say this. I like you. He said, and uh, he said, you're really passionate about doing this. So I'm going to give you, I'm not going to want any money from you. I'm going to give you a year to see if you can make anything of this. And then we'll have another lunch in a year's time and you can tell me what's happened. Brilliant. And that was, you know, one of the big yeah. breakthroughs that yeah. I had. I went on to make that into a 26-part television show, sold it to ITV. Somebody in America, ABC uh, Broadcasting in the States, saw that cartoon, wanted to buy the rights to make it into a show in the States. You know, by the time Frank and I got back together again... Did you do all that in a year? No, no, it, no that took a few yeah. years. By the end of the first year, I'd managed to get ITV to like it and say, right. we've made a little pilot, and ITV said, yeah, we like it, we'll, we'll commission it. It was right. central television in those days. So and you then, went back to Frank and said, we sold it. Yeah, got a broadcast. Gave him a good deal, I hope. Yeah, yeah he gave me a great deal. Yeah. Um, it actually, he told me years later when we got together, because we, we became great friends. I got a picture of him on my wall right. in my study. He said it educated his grandchildren. Brilliant. I can't thank you enough. Compared to what kids have on their plate now with Nickelodeon and all those, you know, when I was growing up, there was just, you know, Magic Roundabout was good. And I used to get up and watch the Clangers. And yeah. Champion the Wonder Horse and Zorro. And there was a multicolored swap shop. Play school. John Craven's news round. You know, well, one of the ideas I had after we got this business running was to go back and bring back a lot of those old things. Yeah. So I approached the guy. Do you remember Camberwick Green and yeah, Trumpton and all yeah, of those? Yeah. So we brought those back, got involved with the people who made Morph, got yeah. and brought that back, the Magic Roundabout, all of those old shows. I started realizing that, yeah, they were wonderfully creative yeah. and that kids today would like them just as much as exactly. we'd like them when we were growing up. So, yeah, so I, I bought rights after that. 
as the business grew, I then started also acquiring part of the IP in some of the projects. Uh, I worked with a really creative guy called Graham Ralph, and he made some great shows, The Forgotten Toys, The First Snow of Winter, and they went. They were more your award pieces. Yeah. By the time you were 30, were you just made pretty much well the first the first 10 years were quite tough i was always going off on training courses to try and be a better boss or be a better manager it was the standing joke was what new ideas you're going to come back with next yeah we we had a tremendous growth from about year 12 onwards mm-hmm. and we ended up being in the virgin fast track when it first started that was 99 i think and uh, I was on the front page of the business section of the Sunday Times with, with a whole bunch of teddy bears yeah. that I was just making a show about. And, and I got a great young team of people who I'm still friends with most of them mm. and who said, you know, it was the best company they ever worked for. Because they, they were all involved. We'd, have, we'd all get together, we'd brainstorm, what should we buy next? What mm. should we do next? I, so how many people were you employing? 28 okay. at that point. When 28 of and you were, what about the rest of your life? Had you kids yourself then at that stage? Or? Yeah, I'd got two little ones at that stage. Rebecca was born in 92 and Sam in 94. In 99, when we were all over the media, then people wanted to buy the business from me. And David, who I'd brought in as a finance guy and given shares in the business, and I couldn't have done it without him, had to have a triple heart bypass. That made us both think. And I said, you know what? I don't think this industry is ever going to be at the height that Mm. it is now again. And we've got all this publicity. So around this time, Nickelodeon was up and running. Yeah, Nickelodeon. Yeah. They were were probably doing what you did on speed, right? Yeah. Kind of thing. Uh, In fact, when I sold the business, the first job offer I got was to head up Nickelodeon UK. Um, But I then discovered that my son son was pretty dyslexic. And I I sold the business to a a company um, that was wanting to build a business in this field. And my big lesson then was that they had a culture that was completely different to the culture that I'd created. It was very empowering and engaging. People had a say. Everybody had a say. Even the the decorator would come up on out. We'd have a company day and he came up with one of the best ideas for a TV show. And he was just an old job man that came in and helped us out. Great guy. But the, the company that bought us, it was completely the opposite. It was all about hit your targets, yeah. work hard. Uh, not that I mind that, but there was no reward and recognition for anybody who did good work. It was a vicious culture. Being part of it was hell because mm. all the people that worked for me, so we took all 28 when we were taken over. And within three years, there was only two people left. And they'd lost nearly all of the clients. The big company is buying you because they're jealous of your culture. They yeah. buy you and then they expect your culture to just walk straight in the door and kind of live with their culture. Yeah. And they're also buying you sometimes for purely greed and the money that you're bringing, right? Yeah. Why was this company making all this money before, yeah. before we bought it? Yeah, exactly. Not- <laughs> and why isn't it anymore? You know, I'm surprised. I you know, know. what you, you've actually been deeply insulting and said, you know, we've grown like we've grown, but we've been doing a rubbish job and we're going to do so much better with what you've done. You know, really? Uh, And it it was a real eye-opener for me. And why now I love working in the area of culture? Because I experienced firsthand the clash of two cultures and how demoralizing it is for people. And it also wrecks your baby. Yeah, oh, it destroyed it. Within five years, they'd gone bust. So you sold it, what, mid to the early 2000s? 2001. Right, okay. Yeah, it was completely life Tell me one thing about the your, let's maybe go here now, the, the glass ceiling, you know, women in business topic. You, yeah. You mentioned at the start that you, possibly because of your brothers and that, you were you were kind of luckily equipped, yeah. so shall we yeah. say, in terms of how you... Yeah, but give me some of your observations just on your, on your working career in terms of where we're at with the glass ceiling. We, we can even stray into the harassment area that's so hot as a topic right now yeah my generation so the sort of baby boomers Mm. generation we were breaking the mold and i think it caused a lot of problems for men they felt emasculated in some instances Mm. they didn't know how to deal with it 
it brought about, in some ways, lots of bad behaviour. And certainly listening to the harassment stories, and I worked, I, you know, I knew Harvey. I, I never had any experiences with him. But what we're talking about that he did was pretty commonplace. Certainly I can think of two instances with high-profile people, well-known people, who I was asked to, by my boss, go and deliver a report in a hotel, which I thought was probably fine. And as I say, coming from an environment where I'd always worked with men, uh, or a family of men, I, I didn't have a problem with it. But I was put into situations where they thought I'd come for a completely different reason than what I'd come for. And that was pretty commonplace. Because I was strong, um, I just was, get off. What the hell do you think you're doing? And I put them in their place very, very quickly. So I never felt threatened by it. Uh, I felt annoyed by it and irritated by it. But they tended to be men who were very unattractive. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and it was their way of thinking that, you know, they had some power oh, over yeah. women. And, it, you know, it required women to say, you've got to be kidding. Yeah. Get off. Equally, if, if a guy sort of touched me, you know, put his arm around me or anything, that, that was fine. A hand yeah. on the knee or, yeah. you know, I, I never felt... You know, I might feel he got a bit too close or, yeah. you know, he was in my comfort zone. But, Isn't it you know, I could strange? joke about it. It's kind of strange because both parties know when it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you put your arm around someone you work with, man or woman, yeah. and you know yeah. if it's creepy or if it's not creepy. Exactly. You know if the hand goes somewhere and it starts doing something, you know, yeah. that it's, it's wrong. I mean, the other thing I noticed in the ad business because of course the ad business was probably one of the worst you know mad men being a great example and and accurate i mean i I started in the ad business in 87 i could feel the echo boom of of mad men in the agency that i worked in ogilvy in in dublin there was also in my career an awful lot of women playing the game yeah absolutely Um, and i understand that um i I was in an, an agency in in sydney briefly as MD, and three of the girls who were account directors uh, said to me, we have voice messages saved of inappropriate behavior from chairman. They have a guy jumping out in the car park, trying to cost them their bosses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. E- inappropriate emails, all saved, all ready to go. Yeah. Right. I said to my partner, I said, we have a Tinder box here. And the girls knew that. Now, they were able to do that because the guys were misbehaving and behaving appallingly yeah. towards them. They didn't decide to go anywhere with it until such time as maybe they needed to from a career point of view. Like, you want to fire me? Well, I'm going to be coming after you with all this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And they also were, and I'm not, I'm not casting any blame here, they were very co- coquettish around the office. Mm. Um, not baiting it, but, you know. And I found that quite, quite disturbing at yeah. the time. Because whenever it happens... In a, in a very bad way, the victim tends to get terribly accosted by either lawyers or bosses or whatever. And it's very hard to come forward and re- reveal powerful people's misdemeanors. Mm. No, I, I, I would say that I would think that's very accurate to what yeah. I experienced. It never held me back an yeah. iota. In fact, I would say being a woman was a decided advantage. It got me in to meet with people. It got me to have discussions with people. There were things that were acceptable Mm. then. I mean, I'm not saying really bad behaviour, but there was a sort of line that, you know, and women did play a part in in that. I'm not saying the way they were dressed, but there was certainly some um, Mm. um, amount of... Uh, mutual responsibility yeah. for that world, and may, well, maybe even a permissiveness yeah. of of, a, of not reporting it or not dealing. Well, with it's it. when it goes from playful to creepy, or yeah. when it goes from when it goes to abusive, or when it goes to power, or when it goes to you know, I've I've had CFOs of agencies. I've I've, had, I've just happened to walk in, and my PA is in tears, and there's a guy lording over, and he's not sexually abusing her, but he's just making her cry, and I'm going, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. You know, and he was, again, very ugly. And, mm. and you know, the other thing was the, the, the glass ceiling, though, the fact women representation. I mean, I suppose television uh, is, is 
not the worst offender, but you know we've had the whole British, yeah, the we've had the whole salary issue yeah, with BBC yeah. this year. Have you seen improvements there and with the companies you're working with now? Or? Um, well, I, I I see a lot of successful women who have had a real clear purpose of what they wanted to mm. achieve and the persistency to to go ahead and and really achieve a lot. Yeah. You know, whether it's Joe Malone or you know, there's there's lots of examples mm. of, of of that. I think there is quite a desire also to get women on boards from a diversity point yeah. of view. I think that's really important. I yeah. think we bring a different point of view. Uh, we see things differently. I mean, I do a lot of work in the area of emotional intelligence, okay. particularly with men, because one of the attributes now that is, is really required from I senior totally people yeah. is empathy, empathy mm. and being able to build relationships. Yeah. And men tend to be really good at the assertiveness yeah. skills and the self-confidence and the self-reliance. But relationship skills are increasingly important. Mm. And, you know, if we're going to get the best from people coming through, I think they're absolutely key. And you look at the businesses that really outperform on the stock market, mm. they have great leaders. Mm. And emotional intelligence is absolutely key to leadership. Well, my, I mean, I was a, a difficult employee in mm. my time in advertising agencies but I hope not too difficult I mean I was I mean I, I, I was the sort of guy who you know spoke what I thought and sometimes you're not supposed to do that it got me in trouble sometimes but the best people I worked with the best bosses were were 90% were women you know yeah. because they were the, the men in advertising there's still a sort of a big swing and dick mentality mm. and there's still kind of not, 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 not that all of them, there have been some great men who are, I, I like the term alpha female, you know, who yeah. are kind of not afraid to cry, not afraid to be emotional with, with somebody. But the women I, that, that I worked with, they were less, you know, they were, everyone's able to, to play politics and, you know, women play it and men play it. But the bosses that I had were much more able to sort of move on a spectrum of, dealing with different types of people and different types of clients. And I thought they were, by and large, better. Yeah. Well, I think those emotional intelligence skills around empathy and relationship building, by and large, and it is a generalisation, women are better at them. Yeah. But I still think there's a lot of women, and this is where I think women who've been successful can play a part. Self-belief is an issue that women often struggle with. And I, I think need good mentors and supporters yeah that they can bounce ideas off that can give them that self-confidence. Mm. And, and that is an area which I think still we, we're struggling with. Got the ability, competent to do things, but they're not the self-belief to yeah. push on and, and achieve. Um, the recognition now and the drive to get women on board. So, you know, hopefully we'll see women bringing on other women mm. in key roles. But, I, you know, I'm still a believer it should be the best person for the job. Absolutely. Um, you know. And, but you're, and, we're moving now into your mentoring yeah. thing. So how, so you sold this company. That's, how did the genesis of, the, of the, the what you're doing today come about then? So I sold the business in 2001. Took some time off. I got involved with the media unit at uh, down in Bournemouth at the mm. university. Didn't need to work. And then... Um, one of my great passions is food and wine. <laughs> me too. I, I met a friend who was involved in the restaurant business and uh, he asked me if I fancied getting involved in a restaurant. And it all sounded a bit of fun. So I, I agreed to put some investment in, which I could afford to do because of having sold mm -hmm. the media company. And we opened, um, we ended up opening a restaurant in Hammersmith. It was a complete and utter disaster. <laughs> It, it, it's, I didn't know what the next one was going to be there. It's, <laughs> it's uh, it started, it was 2007. It started off quite well. And then in 2008, it was right next door to Disney and Coca-Cola and L'Oreal. And at lunchtime, it was packed. <laughs> what was the name of it? It was called Bianco Nero. Right. Took off really well at first. Then 2008 happened. All business lunches were cancelled. And it was just a bottomless pit no. of money draining through it and I didn't know what I could do to stop it my supposed business partner had 
buggered off and left me in charge. Uh, I'd never run a restaurant. My God, it it's was hard, isn't it? Hard, hard, hard. And also, I have no this idea whole, how the hard. economics of the plate, which you don't think about, right? Yeah. Uh, much... and every every serving is a performance. Correct. And we had everything happen. We had the kitchen set on fire. We had a hold up. We poisoned somebody. Really? We had a knife pulled on somebody. And it got to the point where I used to be here of an evening when I wasn't in the restaurant. And I used to be terrified of the phone ringing because I thought something's going to have happened. I nearly, uh, nearly couldn't answer the phone. It, it was a, a real unbelievable nightmare for me. And how did you extricate yourself from that? Well, I, I, I gave it away, basically. Right. I met a youngish chef who had just won an award on one of these cookery shows and whatever and said, you wouldn't like a restaurant, would you? And he took it off my hands. And I lost a lot of money. Is it still going? No. Right. He couldn't turn it around either. But you learned. I learned. <laughs> you learn most from yes, your failures. you do. Don't you, you learn yeah. most from your failures. I always say to somebody, you know, think about it. What, you know, what did you do wrong? What could you have done differently yeah. um, if you went back and did that? And, and gosh, there was masses of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, when it was at its absolute worst moment... I saw this poster which said business is booming, you know, and it was at the height of the recession when everything was a yeah. disaster, the banking crisis and everything else. And it was 2008. Um, my marriage had fallen apart as well. It was just a really black time for me. And I know I took to yoga, which probably mm-hmm. saved me and helped me get through right. it all. And I thought, I'll go, I'll go along to this thing. And I listened to this Australian guy called Brad Sugars, who basically said that he could make any good small business a success. And I thought, you couldn't make that bloody restaurant of mine a success, I tell you. But a lot of it, what he was saying, really rang true. And he said, you know, my goal is to put a business coach into every business, just as everybody has an accountant. Mm. They need a business coach. And use the analogy to sport and how when you go to the gym, you perform a lot better if you've got a personal coach. And he wanted to create world abundance through business re-education. And he was incredibly passionate about what Mm. he was going to do. So there's a touch of the Tony Robbins about this guy. Yeah, there's a touch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He really was the beginning of business coaching. You know, 20 years ago, you you didn't hear of a business coach. Now, you're all over. And how is he today? He is a very, very, very wealthy, wealthy man. man. <laughs> <laughs> a very, very, and Action Coach is a worldwide right. franchise. Yeah, because I remember the Tony Robbins stuff came out and two of my friends, very close friends, pumped like 10 grand of theirs into seeing him in Hawaii, you know, whatever. And I, I was in Bangkok and I got all the CDs of his on cheap in the markets and listened to them and... I was a bit sceptical, really. And then his marriage broke up. He did a whole piece about how my marriage, and I met the woman, and I saw her, and she was the woman of my dreams, and I was never going to leave her. And then two years later, she's it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Physician healed thyself. But so this guy was the spark. He, and he yeah, said, I he and I, I, I was in a bad place at mm. the time. And I, I went on a sort of discussion. Oh, well, they invited me to go. They were having a big European conference in Portugal. And I thought, yeah, I should go. I should Mm. go for two reasons. One, to listen to what this opportunity is. Not that I needed to do it financially, but just because I needed... Your mojo was losing. Yeah, and I felt, who am I now? You know, I'm probably going to get divorced. I don't have a career anymore. I'm going to have to give away quite a lot of what I've earned to get out of this marriage. I mean, I, I don't know you very well, but, you know, just the immediate impression I get from you is, like, you're a tough bird to knock down. Yeah, I've got a lot of resilience. And so for you to be on the canvas is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. and it was yeah. terrifying for mm. me. It was a really scary place to yeah. be. I went along to this, and loads of people said to me, oh, God, no, it's rubbish, <laughs> yeah. it's this, it's that, and the other. And I, so I, I looked at it pretty hard and I looked at the toolkit they provided mm. on how to make a small business successful from, you know, basic things like doing cash flow to budgeting to marketing plans. You know, everything was there. Mm. And I thought, wow, this is impressive. When I'd had my own business, I'd spent thousands and thousands of pounds going on courses to learn all this mm-hmm. stuff. 
And I became a chartered company director through the Institute of Directors by going, you know, going on all these courses. And I thought, you know, people go into business with a great idea mm. and they're technically brilliant at doing something, but they don't know this stuff. They, they don't know about finance or they don't know about sales marketing. Or even a hairdresser, you know, they might be brilliant at cutting hair, but they don't know how to run a business. And I'm like, yeah, I really got it. This idea, create a commercial profitable enterprise that can work without you one day. And, and I thought, yeah, I've got that T-shirt. That is exactly what I have mm. done. And therefore, I can sell this to people mm. because I've, I've done Lived it. it yeah. And, you know, and not only did it. And failed it. Yeah. I, and, and, I've had a, and I've had a failure yeah. as well. And, Which is and, very important. Yeah. I, I probably would never have done it if I hadn't have had that failure. Yeah. If I hadn't have had that wake-up call that said to me, you're not so brilliant. You know, you mm. might have had something that worked. But when you're in an industry you knew nothing about, you know, and you thought it was simple, like serving food, you didn't crack it. You didn't do all the stuff you'd done and learnt about in the past. So, uh, yeah, so I, I spent 80 grand. I bought a franchise. I went over... Oh, of this guy's franchise? Yeah, okay. Brad Sugars, and it's called Action Coach. I went to Las Vegas, which is where he's based. Of course he is. And, uh, yeah, and did the training program, which a lot of stuff I knew, but a lot of stuff around mindset yeah. and around not only the the you know the, the tactical stuff in the business, but who the person you needed to be to make a business successful yeah. and why are you doing it you're doing it to have the life you want to have so what are your dreams what will you what do you want to have mm. and they may just make a dream chart you know where, where haven't you been in the world that you want to go and one of the people who was inspirational in me doing it is my my son i'd given up working when when i discovered he was dyslexic and i'd been pretty on his case for a good few years and he said to me you know mom I think I like it better when you work. And then when he heard about Action Coach and I told him about it and everything, he said to me, I really think you should do this, Mom. You'd be great at it. So when I got back, we all sat on the floor with magazines. And mm. I said, we're making a dream chart. And they said, what? I said, you know, we're now just the three of us, the two kids and me. And I said, we're going to cut out magazines. We're going to say the things we want to have and the countries we want to go to. Because if I'm going to work, I don't have to work anymore. If I'm going to work, I want to work because we're going to do something about it. So uh, so that's what we did. And uh, that was seven years ago. I became an action coach. And that led me to meet loads of new people. Mm. I met a business psychologist called Martin Newman, who worked on this whole area of leadership and emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I realized that probably one thing I was quite good at was emotional intelligence and helping people be the best version of themselves Mm. by building better relationships, by being able to communicate better, whether it's, um, you know, some rising star. I I went and met uh, a, a company in the PR and advertising field and they said, we've got this young guy. He's brilliant. Um, but he's lacking in self-belief and self-confidence. And uh, but we want to make him MD, but we think he needs a coach. And I came along and I talked about emotional intelligence. And yeah. I said, I've got this great tool. It's called the Emotional Capital Report. Yeah. And we'll be able to get, you know, how good you are on things now. Mm. And we'll do a 360. We'll get feedback from other people. And this guy just said to me, I love this. I said, mm. I absolutely right. love This is what I need. I need somebody to give me the confidence. Mm. And uh, I worked with him. And that was probably one of my first clients. You know, he wrote me the most amazing testimonial saying, right. I've learned more in the first did eight weeks. Did he become weeks. MD? <laughs> he did. He, did, he became right. MD of the business. And I still keep in touch with right. where his career is going now. Yeah. It's, a business, it's a part of my life that I'm, I love the idea of mentoring people. Yeah. And I, I, I have a few, five or six people around the world who I have kept in, in touch with. And, and it's, it's very heartening because you see in them something as well that you kind of try and nurture. Before we finish, tell me about the future of the world. Where are we going? Oh, God. I've, I'm... The world to me has gone slightly crazy. For me, it all started to go horribly wrong with Brexit. I, I was deeply shocked by what happened and what it's drummed up. And how even to state now Mm. that you think Brexit is wrong, you're told you're undemocratic. Mm. I think if we had the vote again tomorrow, 
the result would be completely different because I think people told a pack of lies about what it meant. We've gone back to Little Britain. We had lots going for us and we were making an impact as a country and on the environment and on all sorts of things. We, we had influence. Mm. Now we've retreated to a place of no influence mm. where we're going to be insular, uh, you know, we're going to be culturally bereft of people mm. that have given so much and created. And, you know, I know I live in London. I, I don't come from London. I come from the north of England. I know people outside of London feel, you know, London's had it good. And I, I guess we have, but... You know, we created, I think, in London, one of the best multicultural, forward-thinking, yes. business-orientated. No, and we funded a lot of the rest yeah. of the country through that. And now I hear, you know, banks leaving and people leaving. And I, I think it's, it's really sad. But I think we have a young generation coming through. They are passionate about the environment, which I think is really, really important. And they want to have real purpose and meaning in their lives. And I think the best that my generation can do now is support and nurture and help people build a better future than we're we're currently seeing. And I think things have got to be fairly drastic. The Conservative Party, if it doesn't do something really drastic, is going to be dead in the water because they're not appealing at all or understanding this generation that are coming through. On the other hand, I remember that very left-wing politics way back. I can't think of a country in the world that's made socialism work successfully. And I fear what Jeremy Corbyn talks about. I don't think nationalising and going back to the dark days that Mm. I remember with, you know, when the lights went out at three. Yeah, the miners' strikes. Three o'clock winter in winter of discontent. You know, the lights, do you remember? The yeah. lights had to be turned off at yeah. three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. I remember those days vividly. I mean, I did. I debate it with you in the sense that I think the Scandinavian countries, which would be primarily social democrats, I think have done a very good job in mm. terms of, yes, you pay 60% tax, but you don't moan about the fact that you can see where it's going and you can see a more equal... Coming from Ireland, looking at Britain, you know, we have a lovely history together, as you know. Um, <laughs> well, with a name like Derry, I, obviously, I, I have a bit of Irish origin. never got there. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to call you Claire Londonderry. <laughs> we, um, I do see all of those points you make. I am very of the opinion that the EU needs to be restructured. And yeah, I don't me too. think it's as great a thing as it thinks it is. And I don't think it stopped wars. And I think it's a big, fat, bloated thing that... If I was Irish, I would be terrified that we would even think about leaving because it's been very good to us. With Britain, I look at it and go, yes, all those things you said, but I also think Britain is as strong as any of the big member states of, and will continue to be, with a blip for the leaving. Mm. Britain can emerge from it successfully. The key thing is the young people. We do have a 30-something year old prime minister in Ireland who's gay, which is nuts, right? Mm. I mean, we, we've never had a 40-something year old prime minister. We now have a 30-something. Canada are doing it. Yeah. Macron means business. Yeah, he's, he's, up to, yeah. he's up to something there in France that's going to change the whole thing. We don't know what's going to happen in Germany. And I, I was away for 26 years and I came back to Ireland and I said to anyone who'd listened to me, it's the same five things that were problems in Ireland are the same five things that are problems today, except they're worse. Homelessness, education needs reform, health, waiting lists, uh, you know, procrastination in government and growing inequality. Mm. And they're the things that we need to fix. And we don't fix them clearly by repeating what's been going on for the last oh, 21 exactly. years. Weird things like Brexit do serve to shake up. But I do believe, going back to maybe where we started the podcast, that capitalism is in its death throes and something needs to emerge. Yeah. That is more inclusive. That, it need, that as you said, companies need to be putting stuff back, and it needs to be something different than the the land grab and the money grab. And it's the same happening in America. I mean, Trump will not be in power by young people. You know, no. people, young people go, "What the hell is this old business yeah, guy trying God. to rape and pillage the what, what's yeah. left?" You know. I so, think also, you know, you need a major break, a real moment of crisis yeah. that leads to a breakthrough. Yeah. Brexit is that, Trump Trump is is that that, in America. And we do need now some, you know, as you say, somebody of a younger generation that has a vision. 
a vision we can get behind that is is a much better world. It is appalling that we some of the stuff we still have for a rich country like us. The housing situation, it, it's it, embarrassing. It is. It is. Yeah, you you right. think why why can we not get to grips with this yeah. in some way? But it requires leadership. But what is frightening is if we have a fairly right-wing conservative government yeah. taking us in one direction yeah. for five years and then a left-wing Labour government yeah. trying to spinning undo and spinning the wheel yeah, in completely yeah. the other direction. You know, where, where's this middle-of-the-road politics yeah. with a caring side that is, is but also recognises that we need to, to be generating money and wealth and, yeah. you know, you can't be anti all of that. You've got to do that. The last question I have for you is, what does the... Claire Derry that's arrived out at this point of your life, say to the young Claire Derry who's just going to Newcastle, if you had the chance. No, no, that's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting one. My, my adage today is to find something you love doing. Do what you yeah. love and love what you do. Be passionate about it, commit to it. If necessary, burn all the bridges from doing anything else and persist with what you really, really want to do. Uh, I'm so impressed meeting young people that have that philosophy yeah. and they become very, very successful. You can see successful. it sometimes. Yeah. yeah. But there are people who will say, well, I don't know what that is. And, and so start off by trying stuff. Try as many things as possible. Mm. Be open-minded. Move around. But uh, one of the books that I think was quite inspirational for me is a book called Think and Grow Rich. My father loves that book as well. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, it, it was written in the 1930s, yeah. and it was all about what was the philosophy of the men that built the modern world. Yeah. And it was, well, there were some women as well, I'm, you know, but, but, you know, Henry Ford, J.P. Morgan, Schwab, Carnegie, all of those, Edison, all of those people. And there were 13 guiding principles yep. that they all, um, that they had. One of them was get around you people that have wisdom, that can support you, give you advice. And mm. I think my word to my generation would be, be a mentor, be somebody that is prepared to help and support uh, the ideas and inspiration mm. of the generation coming through. And to the younger generation, follow your passions mm. and, and go for it and enjoy great. your life. It's a great place to leave it clear. Derry, thank you so much. Action Coach is the company. Best of luck with everything and let's hope that we can mentor kids and young people to get us out of the mess we've got us into. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Oh.